Why were Samuel and Eli sleeping in the temple? We usually frown upon people sleeping in church, and we see it often enough, do not operate heavy machinery while preaching. But there's a pretty good explanation as to why this is occurring for both of them. In the case of Samuel, it's because his mother, when he was still a baby, gave him to Eli for the specific purpose that he would be dedicated to God in the temple as Eli's servant and God's servant. Well, why would Samuel's mother do that? If we went back three chapters to the beginning of the story, Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, she's in the temple every day for years on end, and her prayer never changes. They were old. They had no children. And for centuries before that and after that, if you were barren, could not have children, if someone was born blind or was afflicted with leprosy, people would say, well, you must have sinned against God, and now he has cursed you. This is not true. It wasn't true then. We do not believe this now. But that was the common thinking of the time. And so Hannah kept praying that God would remove their affliction. And she wasn't asking this for herself. She was asking it for her husband. Because this is more than a thousand years before Jesus and before the resurrection. The only way a Jewish man could live on after death was to preserve the family name and his bloodline. That was his legacy, living on after his death. So Hannah kept praying, make Elkanah a father from my womb. And God, if you do that, I will give that child right back to you. That was a selfless, sacrificial prayer. God loves those kind of prayers. And so he did make them parents. And as soon as Samuel was weaned, he was given to Eli. And he's been staying in the temple ever since. As for why they have to stay there as opposed to somewhere else, well, yes, Eli is a Levitical priest. And those are the only ones who could gain access to the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. But in this age before Comtronics, you couldn't leave sacred and precious things unattended. And so Eli, he gets the night watch. He has to watch over the holiest object on the face of the earth, the Ark of the Covenant, all night long. And yet that night, in this particular first reading, there wasn't a lot of sleep for Samuel or for Eli because somebody kept calling out Samuel's name. Logically, Samuel thinks it's Eli. Eli said, it's not me. And this repeats itself four times until Eli points Samuel in the right direction. After all, we're in God's house. We're in front of the Ark of the Covenant. We should expect things like this to happen in such a sacred space. And so it is the Lord calling Samuel, who was still a child, calling him by name. And Samuel, with great faith, says, here I am, Lord. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. He was pledging himself to do God's will just as his mother had pledged him for that when he was still an infant. And God has a plan for Samuel, but neither Eli nor Samuel know what it is. Samuel, though a child, has committed himself to God's plan without any idea how costly that decision will be. And God does indeed have a great plan for him. As when he grows up, he is going to go off in search of the first and great kings of Israel, Saul, and then David. Samuel's commitment was immediate, it was total, and it was offered without question, comment, or delay. But of the prophets of the Old Testament, Samuel's immediate willingness to do God's unknown will stands out. Because of so many other cases, there was reluctance and reticence on the parts of the patriarchs, prophets, and judges chosen by God to go and preach to God's people. We can see it a century before 
Samuel with Moses. When Moses was spoken to by God at the burning bush, even though he saw the burning bush, that wasn't convincing enough for him. Instead, when God told Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, Moses said, wait a second. Pharaoh thinks I'm a murderer. He's going to kill me. He's not going to listen to me. The Hebrews aren't going to listen to me. Choose somebody else. We see it again with people like Isaiah when he was called upon 700 years before the birth of Jesus to go preach repentance. What did he say? I am doomed. Jeremiah, I speak like a child. No one will be convinced by anything I say. Jonah, well, he would rather commit suicide than have to go to Nineveh to preach repentance. Samuel, that's why he stands out. All he said was, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. He was willing to go along with God on that great adventure, figuring out that if it's God who's calling me to this work, then God will see it to completion. But going back through Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah, God did not ask someone else to do the work he gave to them and he created them to fulfill. They had to overcome all their fears, all their thoughts of unworthiness, unwillingness, and they had to do it anyway. And that's the only means by which they would ever find their happiness and fulfillment in this life is to do God's work instead of doing things according to their own wishes and desires. Samuel's immediate acceptance of God's will sets the stage for the apostles who a thousand years later, sight unseen, would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the King of Kings, and the Son of God. And that's what happens in the beginning of the gospel here today. Now that the Christmas season has ended and we've returned to ordinary time, we've set aside the gospels of Matthew and Luke that told the story of Jesus' birth, and now we set our attention on John, and starting next week, Mark, neither of whom mentioned Jesus' birth. Instead, John and Mark begin their gospels with Jesus 30 years old, ready for baptism, and only then does he begin his ministry. The first 30 years of Jesus' life are a great mystery to us. For all we know, he never performed a miracle up until that time. His true identity as God's son was a closely guarded secret in the home of the Holy Family in Nazareth. Why? Because there was always someone that wanted to kill the newborn king of the Jews, and so it was better kept under wraps. But now, in verse 35 of the first chapter of John, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, that voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He sees Jesus coming toward him and his own disciples who were following him, hoping that he would lead them to the Messiah. And what does John say when he sees Jesus? For the second time in six verses in that same chapter, he says with reference to Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God. He wants his apostles to know this is the one I've been preaching about. This is the one I've been pointing toward. This is the one I've been preparing you for. And his mission is complete. He was to prepare the way of the Lord. Well, there's the Lord. And his disciples immediately leave following John the Baptist to start following Jesus. And then after their encounter with the Christ, they go and find other people to follow Jesus, the church's mission already taking place. People encounter Christ and then bring other people to encounter Christ. And that's how the gospel is spread like wildfire throughout these 20 Christian centuries. What's interesting is much like Samuel, who needed no explanation before he accepted God's voice, God's word, God's will at work in his life, so too Andrew, Simon who becomes Peter, James and John, the son of Zebedee. They've never seen Jesus perform any miracle. He has yet to do any mighty deed in John's gospel. And yet they believe anyway, just by the look of him, they can see 
that he is the Lamb of God. He is the one that they and their ancestors have been waiting for and praying for and suffering for. Heaven has come to earth in the flesh of the person of Jesus Christ, fully human and fully divine. It is not until the next chapter that Jesus will turn water into wine and begin the thousand days of preaching, teaching, and healing and those many miracles that lead him to his greatest miracle on the cross when he would there conquer our greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death forever and for everyone. But today it begins with a question, Master, where do you stay? And Jesus offers them an invitation, come and see, come and follow me, and they do. Jesus is inviting them on a great adventure. It's the greatest story ever told. It's his story and it's ours that charts both our origins and our destiny. And that's how ordinary time begins. As we journey towards Lent and the Passion and Easter, we will now, with the apostles, walk with Jesus around the towns of Galilee and to Nazareth and to Jerusalem and to the Samaritan towns all those places where he will teach and preach and heal. And like those apostles who left everything to follow him, we join him on this adventure, hoping that we will listen carefully to what he says and watch closely what he does so that we will see that God does indeed answer every prayer in the person of his Son and our Savior, Jesus.